Hollywood is rated LGBT Radio, starring your host, Rob Watson! Welcome, welcome, welcome to this installment of Rated LGBT Radio, and yes, I am Rob Watson. Uh, We have a really important, great show lined up for you. Um, Our friend Brandon J. Wolf is here. Brandon, we've talked to a couple times. I had him on my Santa Cruz radio show, um, and I think we've had him on Rated LGBT as well. Um, Brandon is... Um, among other things, and there, there's quite a lot of qualities and experience that Brandon represents, but uh, one that he's well known for is being a survivor of the Pulse shooting massacre. Um, he was there. Um, he's told us the story. Um, he has also relayed that story now within his memoir, um, A Place for Us, which is his new book out. Um, the book is incredibly well written. Um, it is detailed, um, on not just that experience, but, um, his life and having to deal with a lot of varied issues, being a young gay man, um, dealing with the intersexuality, intersectionality of being black in America, being gay in America, being biracial in America, and um, the, the feeling of being alone while being in a crowd. Um, and he writes very, very poignantly and shares a lot of experiences, definitely have handkerchiefs nearby. Um, there were several points in the book where I just absolutely, completely teared up, and that, that's a hard thing when you're trying to read. Um, but it is it is just an incredible book, book full of impact. Um, Brandon, of course, as I said, on one June night several years ago, his life changed when he was crouched in a bathroom while a gunman opened fire in Orlando's Pulse nightclub. Um, it killed two of his best friends um, that were there and as well as 47 others. Um, he, in the book, he touches on what happened and his transformative journey through his life, including that um, from feeling as a young outlier to a galvanizing activist. He, um, he has stepped up to the plate in a way that almost no one else has, having come out of that experience to be an advocate and an activist. Um, he is confronted his darkest times with healing, hope, and resistance. Um, his quote is, from our backs against the wall, we find a way out together. Um, he is now a nationally recognized gun safety and LGBTQ civil rights advocate. Um, he is a din- dynamic public speaker. Uh, he also serves as the press secretary for Equality Florida, which is Florida's um, LGBTQ civil rights organization, and God knows they have their hands full with everything that's been going on there. Um, uh, he also, um, wow, he's, his um, ex- 
appearances in media is um, overwhelming at this point. He's been a guest on M- MSNBC numerous times. He was most recently interviewed um, regarding Ron DeSantis' horrendous anti-LGBTQ ad that was put out. Um, he's been appeared in print from CNN, USA Today, Newsweek, Teen Vogue, Washington Post, The Advocate, Out Ma- Magazine. He is named by Huffington Post as a uh, in the list of 30 modern-day LGBTQ pioneers, and Business Equality Magazine has listed him as one of 40 LGBTQ leaders under 40. So, um, yeah, so what have you done lately, Brandon? Uh, boy, that's, a, that's enormous. And, um, of course, what he has done lately is um, he's the author of the book, A Place for Us, and we will be getting to Brandon in just a moment. First, um, we need to stop by the desk of Brody Levesque. Brody is the editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Slide magazine, the only magazine you really should be reading on a daily basis for fine journalism covering the LGBTQ world. Um, And uh, you can read that at losangelesblade.com. Welcome, Brody. What's going on today? Hey, Rob. It's been kind of a relatively busy day. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper vetoed three anti-LGBTQ bills in Raleigh yesterday. However, the governor's vetoes will likely be overridden. This will add North Carolina to the list of 20 states that has uh, and or have enacted uh, similar legislation. Uh, one of the measures uh, would ban gender-affirming care for minors. Another one restricts transgender participation in school sports. And then the third is basically Florida's don't say gay law, although not quite as draconian. The vetoes are a roadblock uh, for the anti-LGBTQ lawmakers in the state house, which includes the extremely outspoken homophobic lieutenant governor uh, who's also running for governor of North Carolina, um, who is... Yeah, he's a confirmed kill in terms of being a nice person. Uh, it is expected that all three bills will probably uh, be overwritten, uh, overridden, the vetoes overridden in the next uh, General Assembly session, uh, which will probably occur uh, within the next week or so. So we're watching that in North Carolina. Speaking of Brandon's home state, let's go to Florida. So Florida has um, become ground zero uh, in the movement by the far right, the Christian nationalists, the white nationalists and white supremacists, uh, and quite frankly, the homophobic and transphobic movement in the United States. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, who has been labeled an authoritarian, uh, that's one of the nicer terms used, uh, has, with the Florida lawmakers, pushed through excuse me, about roughly 24 months of legislation that has completely marginalized all LGBTQ people uh, in the state of Florida. One of the most onerous laws that recently took effect is a ban for transgender people in the state of Florida uh, in the state of a bathroom ban. This one, however, contains a criminal penalty. Um, this is not too far of a stretch. Here's a likely scenario. 
Admiral Rachel Levine, who's the Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services and a member of the U.S. Public Health Service, travels to Orlando for a conference. She stops at the airport to an airport restroom to use the bathroom, uh, meshing with her gender identity. The Admiral walks out, and there's a pair of Orange County Sheriff's deputies or airport authority cops waiting to handcuff her and haul off to jail. Now, most people would say that's ridiculous. The truth of the matter is, no, it's not. Um, the, ban, the ban itself doesn't apply everywhere, but it does cast a pretty wide net in terms of public restrooms, city parks, beaches, airports, government buildings, educational institutions. You know, for example, one of the things that was also pointed out, Florida, of course, is a vacation destination. You know, transgender you know, women that would be wanting to, say, change clothes before going out on the beach, they would be forced to use the male restrooms to do this. If they were caught otherwise, out comes the handcuffs. Uh, transgender men, same thing. So in, in Florida, what we're looking at is basically draconian enforcement of this nonsense. Now, it needs to be noted that in the last two and a half, three weeks, a U.S. District Court, two of them in Tallahassee, has managed to upend at least part of Governor DeSantis's agenda. And we've also noticed in a couple of other cases where other judges are following that lead, a federal judge in Kentucky and another federal judge uh, in Tennessee. Ironically, the one in Tennessee was a Trump appointee. And they've started to kind of squelch down the worst of these laws. But, you know, the problem is it's there. Um, you'll be talking to Brandon about something that got everybody uh, talking, including the U.S. Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, and that was the anti-LGBTQ DeSantis ad that was run over the weekend, which, by the way, the governor's not backing off on. He's doubling down on it. Um, what's interesting to me is that the log cabin Republican and the Caitlyn Jenners of the world are now upset because the governor is targeting them. And so they've been making all sorts of noise, and they're saying they're shocked and this and that. And it's like, yeah, well, guess what? This is to be expected. DeSantis has always been right up front about what a cretin he is when it comes down to our community. Um, Secretary Buttigieg was appearing this last weekend from his home in Traverse City, speaking to State of the Union um, on CNN. Basically, the secretary, the secretary addressed it this way, saying, and I'm quoting Buttigieg, I just don't understand the mentality of someone who gets up in the morning thinking he's going to prove his worth by competing over who can make life hardest for a hard-hit community that is already so vulnerable uh, in America. And that was Secretary Buttigieg's take on it. I need to know. Um, that as the editor of the Los Angeles Blade, I obviously have a lot of conversations with a lot of folks. And a week and a half ago, I was privileged to be part of a discussion with the Attorney General of the State of California, Rob Bonta. In the course of that conversation, it was a roundtable with editors, so it wasn't a press call uh, in a traditional question and answering. It was more along the lines of, you know, we were discussing things because I think the Attorney General, who had just released the first hate report for his office wanted to, you know, hear from us. And I raised an issue with him that I think is really important. And I, I, uh, I basically quoted my friend and the former editor of the blade, my dear friend, Karen Oakham. And that is 
that the problem is that the LGBTQ community is seen as an issue, not as people. And this really is where we need to flip the script. You know, we saw it again uh, just this last week with the Supreme Court decision in 303 um, versus creative, uh, 303 creative versus the state of Colorado, uh, where the high court basically said, yeah, you can discriminate against LGBTQ people, but, you know, freedom of artistic expression and all that other rubbish. And again, it goes to the heart of Karen's point, which is the point I made with California's attorney general. You know, we've got to get the script flipped. We have got to start getting people to see us as people and not as an issue. And I think that that's going to be, you know, a primary focus moving forward. You know, I'll have to say that Brandon does it every time he gets on the air. Uh, He's talking on these news shows every time he's interviewed by my colleagues uh, in the mainstream press or, you know, uh, the queer press. Uh, Brandon does a really good job of that. And I, I think that that's one of the things moving forward, you know, when we have, you know, leaders in the community and in the movement like Brandon, uh, these these are things that, you know, need to be talked about. So that's what's going on in the news, Rob. Okay. Well, yeah, that's a lot. And, um, yeah, and uh, I know the Attorney General has asked that you and I have coffee with him, and I hope that um, that comes and then we'll reemphasize that point with him at that time. Um, so, anyway, I, I want to move on to welcome Brandon to the show. Um, Brandon, welcome to the show. It's good to talk to you. Thank you. It's great to be here. And, and thank you to Brody for the, the great rundown on what's happening. There is a, a lot happening in this country, and it's hard to keep up with all of it. Uh, completely. I mean, it's um, is, is mind-bending. And I know you just had a conversation with Andrew Mitchell on um, MSNBC on the Ron DeSantis thing, um, which is appalling. And quite frankly, one mm-hmm. of the, the, the sideline most appalling things about that ad was, uh, you know, he is an absolute fascist, you know, and that is incredibly clear from that. But the fact that he's trying to paint Trump as being pro-LGBTQ, which is, couldn't be further from the truth, um, is, is sort of an a sideline disgusting thing um, as a result of that. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, it would be, uh, it would be comical if it wasn't so disturbing, right? But I, I guess I have to start with the, the sort of political lens of it all, because I, I just don't see the path. I just can't understand this bizarre lane that the governor appears to be carving out where he thinks in 2023, he can build a winning presidential coalition on raw homophobia, transphobia, and just general bigotry toward people. It it strikes me that someone tweeted this, and it it felt really poignant, that you can either run to the right of Donald Trump or you can win independence. You can't do both of those things. And DeSantis is trying to defy the odds by essentially building a presidential campaign from the 1970s and it just for me, from a political standpoint, it seems like a loser. And then, of course, you know, there's just the, the sheer cruelty of it all there. We know that Ron DeSantis is a bigot and has trafficked in bigotry for his entire administration. But to scream it into a megaphone like that, to put out an ad that is so blatantly and brazenly homophobic and transphobic is stunning. Even in 2023, even with all the backlash, it truly is a stunning move from him. Yeah, it's it, it is highly bizarre, and it's 
he he and the I'm gonna just call it the clown car of all the people running is you know they're each picking these kind of very strange approaches. I mean, you've got him who's to your point trying to run to the right of Trump, like, and you have to ask, okay, who is even in that lane? You know, because most of the right is with Trump in a very bizarre way, you know, given everything he's done and everything he's accused of and, you know, all of that. And they're still with him. And, and so Ron DeSantis is trying to get in with that. And then on the mm-hmm. other side is people like Mike Pence of like, okay, who are you trying to win over? Cause yeah, right. his people hate you. Everybody outside of him, you know, we don't believe in you. You're as anti-gay as the rest. And, you know, it's it's just mind-boggling. I And and quite frankly, they all scare me to death because, you know, just uh, when I see polls getting close on a matchup between Biden and them, any one of them is they're, – they're not just, I don't want them to win. Oh, we will deal with it. It's like I am absolutely terrified if a single one of them got into higher office. It's um, – they're yeah. – they're they're the worst I've seen in my my entire life. Um, I want to I want to pivot though um, to your book, and not that this was the same level of that, but when you were in high school, it's like a lot of your experiences there were touching on this ilk of of mm-hmm. you know a a white supremacist group of young people that had you on a hit list. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how what that was like and how you dealt with it then? And do you think back on that now as you're dealing with the bigger versions of them? Yeah, you know, I, I talk often about the parallels between the time we're in right now and the things that I went through as a young person. And I think that's true, by the way, for all generations of LGBTQ people in this country. Certainly we've made progress. Um, marriage equality is still the law of the land for now <laughs> until Clarence Thomas has his way with it. Um, you know, we've, we've secured non-discrimination protections. We enjoy more social acceptance than at any other point in American history. But there's still this pervasive strain of puritanical Christian nationalist hysteria about the existence of LGBTQ people. And what I think is interesting about that, first of all, you know, you're, you're right to tie them together with the white supremacists, the Christian nationalists. They're all one big lump of people that see their values as dominant, as right, and they see their role as using government to impose those values on the rest of us. And what I, what I find interesting about the movement that is so hysterical about LGBTQ people in general is that their argument is that we don't fit the boxes we've been assigned, right? That, that our gender expression doesn't match what they think is acceptable socially, that, you know, our relationships, the people we love don't fit their values set, but they're the ones who forced us outside of that. So I have to wonder at the end of the day, if perhaps they're not just deeply afraid of the fact that we have discovered liberation, that we've tasted what freedom feels like, freedom from this, gender binary construct that forces men to wear pants and women to wear skirts, um, that that just makes them deeply afraid that there's a world that exists full of joy outside of that. So when I was young, you know, I grew up in a really rural town outside of Portland, Oregon. And, um, 
there was a lot of the same stuff happening in my town that, that's, you know, that's going on now across the country. Uh, it was a mostly white, very conservative town, pretty small, where people knew each other all the way from kindergarten through high school graduation. And when I was a senior, my senior year of high school started with the discovery of this branch, or I guess they, they wanted to be a branch, of the Aryan Nation group, which is a white supremacist mm -hmm. organization. And they were operating inside the school, and they, you know, had covert ways of changing their profile pictures to indicate who was part of the group. And they would meet up after basketball games and try to beat up the visiting team. It was really, um, really quite terrifying to be a person of color in that environment. And the way they were discovered is they published a hit list on MySpace. And um, I remember the, the sort of debate in our group about what to do about it. Ultimately, our principal didn't do anything. Uh, there, he, he appears a couple of times in the first chapter right. of the book. Our principal didn't do anything. Uh, and so my friends, you know, did what queer people of color do. They fought back by using the media. <laughs> they told their stories. I had a friend who called the local press who showed up en masse the next day. Uh, and we drew significant attention at the time, at least locally, to what was happening in the school. Yeah, it's – and. You know, it was shocking to read because of um, just because you were living in such a microcosm of a mentality that a lot of us are kind of baffled by. Honestly, it's like the the um, whole emergence of the MAGA Republicans is a lot of us is shocking. It's just you know, it's like it's and and it the truth is they've always been there. And I think that's the thing about the story in your book that points that out. It's like, you know, they were already there. Trump didn't create them. What Trump did was he gave them permission to come out and be vocal and right. be visible and be active. And, um, you know, the, the experience in your high school where there were 11 um, kids of color and 2,000 other students, you know, so it's like, you know, it's not like they were under threat. I do think your words, though, about why, and, you know, there's such a huge anti-LGBTQ issue is I think we threaten not their life but them personally. Because mm -hmm. the, the, the thing with kind of that part of white America and male, the patriarchy of white America is perception and is is um, that if they allow the roles that they are comfortable in to be fluid, then their position, different people's position and power and all that gets changed dramatically. Um, That's right. One example of that is is in your book when you got pulled over by a woman cop who then made it a huge scene of, you know, calling up backup and everything else. And all you had was an expired tag, mm -hmm. you know, you know, that, that type of thing. Um, since I've jumped to that, what was that, what did you learn from that experience? Interesting because even though I grew up in this, you know, majority white town and, and had obviously very uh, intense, um, experiences with racism as a kid, one of the things that I never um, really experienced was a fear of the police in the way that a lot of other people do. And, and I think a lot of that comes from the fact that I 
didn't have uh, black parents sitting at the table. And so we never had the talk. I was never really Mm -hmm. ingrained with the understanding of what it feels like to interact with law enforcement as a person of color. So, you know, I think really for most of my young life, I was naive to the fact that I would be treated differently and, and what that might feel like. And what I learned in that moment is just how real those fears are. I mean, when you're sitting on the side of the road and you have law enforcement officers who are absolutely drunk on power and you can tell their, their voices are dripping with disdain for you, for you being who you are, there is a, a fear for your life that is indescribable because they have so much power. They're carrying weapons. Um, and, and you're not, you're all alone, right? On this side of this dark road, uh, in a town where you're not sure anyone will hear you scream. And for me, that, that moment was such a, you know, a, at the end of innocence, sort of ripping the blindfold off. Mm-hmm. It was the first time that I really confronted the idea that, you know, th- that law enforcement might do something to harm me. Um, and, and that is, it's a terrifying experience. And it was so important for me to capture in the book because, you know, again, the things that I experienced as a kid were, certainly terrifying and intense, but there's something so different and visceral about a moment like that with law enforcement. And, and just to sort of put a button on that, one of the other things I tried to get at in the book is that intersectionality is not a talking point. It's not a, a theoretical ideology. It's a real you know, way to describe lived experiences. And, mm-hmm. and that run-in with the cops was the perfect sort of encapsulation of what it felt like to exist as a queer person of color because they hated me for both reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, and I have to say that, that, well, the whole book is extremely well written, but in that, that episode that you write about there, now I've absolutely been aware and constantly aware of the, divergence of treatment of people of color versus what I might experience at the hands of cops. I've been pulled over by different cops at different times for stupid stuff. And, you know, it's been pretty benign, you know, they've almost been apologetic, you know, although again, they pulled me over something stupid, so they weren't that apologetic, but the way you describe it, I mean, I could absolutely feel sitting in your seat and I could absolutely feel the difference of what your treatment was versus how I would have been treated in that same situation. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I just think it's really important for people who are not of color or white people to sit and read and absorb that is, this, that is the reality that our brothers are experiencing and it isn't mm-hmm. okay and, you know, um, infuriating. Um, I want to step back, though, in the book um, a little bit further to the beginning because you start out with um, a really hard episode in your life, and that is the death of your mom. And, um, you know, when she died, she, she told you three things, to take care of your sisters, be patient with your father, and know you are special. And when I read that, knowing you, it was like, it struck me almost a little bit ironic how those three instructions seem almost definitive of the Brandon Wolf I know. In other words, that, Mm. number one, you have stepped up to your uniqueness and 
taking your experience and your gifts and everything that you are and put them out there bravely in the world. Um, number two, you are exceedingly patient with people who don't understand. And, in fact, in the book you have an arc with your father specifically, but, but in dealing with the political powers that be, you sit calmly and talk to them and are patient, and you take care of the people behind you. I mean, those three things really seem to have defined you. Um, is that conscious for you or just how you're – because you are your mom's son? Yeah, thank you for, for noting that. I would say I have to credit my mother for so much of who I am. Um, as, I, as I tried to capture in the first chapter of the book, she is so much of what I'm proud of in myself. And it, it took me – I'll tell you that there are a lot of really difficult stories to write in this book. Um, obviously, you know, there's a sexual assault scene that was very, very difficult mm-hmm. for me to write. There's talking about pulse is very difficult to, to do. But perhaps the first few pages of the book were the most challenging for me to write because as much as I've talked about so much of my story, I haven't really talked about my mom a lot, and I never really got a chance to sit down and tie the experience of losing her to what happened to the rest of my childhood and beyond. Um, and so that, that was really difficult for me, but as I dove into how I felt losing her and, and how I felt about her and the way that I remembered her, it became really clear to me that everything I'm proud of about myself and what I've been able to accomplish in the world is because of her. She is, you know, she was the strongest person I ever knew. She was probably the first ally I ever came in contact with. And in just a few words with just three tasks given to me, she really did help me identify the kind of person that I needed to be, not just for me, but for those around me. Mm-hmm. Well, you've, I'm, I am sure she is incredibly proud of you, and I don't think she's far oh, from you. thank you. Um, even now. Thank you. Um, but the, um, one of the, the kind of broad issues that comes up throughout the book for you is, uh, the ongoing feeling of guilt that you've mm-hmm. carried being a survivor of, of multiple things, that, um, particularly, of, uh, obviously, the Pulse shooting. Um, and I fear for you for PTSD because I don't know how one would go through what you have and not have that being something that, that would plague you. How, how are you? How are you in those, dealing with those things? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm good. I'm in a, a good place. I think this process of writing this book has been very cathartic for me. Uh, I have a great therapist. I think mental health resources are paramount. So I credit a lot of my uh, well-being to, to getting access to the care that I need. Um, and, you know, I, I will also say that all of this is a journey, right? Healing is really a journey, and it's never straight ahead. It's always got bends and curves and there are obstacles along the way. Some days are harder than others. Um, Certainly when I got the first copies of the book, I I was really emotional. I was thinking a lot about my best friends and and just how much I wish they were here uh, to be able to be a Mm -hmm. part of this journey. I, I thought a lot about how I would I would take it all away. I would send all the books back in the boxes they came from for just five more minutes to be around them. 
Um, so those days are, are heavy, but I will tell you that finding a sense of purpose and hopefully, I, I think, making the world a little better and safer for the next generation has helped me to heal in a way that, that I wasn't sure was possible in the immediate moments after the tragedy. Do you, do you ever reflect on kind of the concept that through the pain and the tragedy and the loss that you were somehow destined to be on this mission? And the reason I ask that is not patronizing, is that, that I don't know if anybody could do this as well as you. Um, you've been, you know, you're always called upon. You're always, I mean, and I feel like it's a little bit invasive of, of um, being asked to speak about gun violence. And, you know, it's like, and, you know, the, the deluge of attack of LGBTQ issues. And, you know, it's like you're, you are pulled into the spotlight again and again for a reason, because you do it so well, because you voice for so many who can't speak so well. Um, do you feel like this was destiny? Thank you. It's a, it's a good question. I struggle a little bit with the idea of destiny and fate because, you know, with, with destiny around good things that happen, it's impossible to separate that from saying that some of the bad things that have happened are also part of that destiny or fate. I, I guess the way that I would sort of characterize it is um, I made it out of Pulse nightclub with my life. I'm incredibly lucky to have made it out. Uh, 49 people did not, including two of the people that I love more than anything in the world. Um, and I had an obligation to find a way to make that matter, to make my continued presence on earth matter, to make sure that my best friends matter, not just because of how they died, but because of how they lived. And, um, and so I, I guess, you know, less than destiny or fate, it, it has felt like an obligation. It has felt like my job. Um, to carry on their legacies and haven't always been perfect. I'm certainly still perfecting my skills. Sometimes uh, I'm, you know, we're all our own worst critics. I'll go back and watch interviews and I'm like, ah, oh, I took a breath there or <laughs> you can see me check my notes there. Right. Um, so I still do all of that sort of thing, but, but I do, I, I feel like, you know, what the tragedy unlocked in me was this deep sense of purpose obligation to make the world better in their honor. Um, and in order to do that, I had to get really good at the things that I was already pretty good at. Well, you, one of the things that happens in the book is, like I've said, you know, you and I have talked a couple of times and, you know, you've, you've shared generously your experience that night and the horrors of that so people can understand what went down and how horrible it was and, you know, and honestly, you're the only one who could do that because everybody else can only imagine and the people who it most affected aren't here to talk about it. And so you you are of a, of a, of a rare few who can let people know exactly how horrible it was. But the other thing that in those conversations, obviously you've talked about the love for Drew and the love for Juan who – did not make it out, but in the book you give even more depth. I mean, obviously the vehicle of mm -hmm. the book allows you to do that um, and really gives the world a feeling and an experience 
of who each of them were and are yeah. in whatever form they are right now. Um, what synopsizing it, what do you want people to know about Drew and what do you want people to know about Juan? You know, there's a couple of things that I've said over the last seven years. One of them is that I don't think I'm the protagonist of my own story. I think that Drew is the protagonist of my story and I'm just the storyteller. I'm just here as the narrator to talk about the impact that he had on me and so many other people. And what I wanted to capture in the book is this sense, one of the, I think, nicest pieces of feedback that I've gotten from someone was, you know, somebody read the book and said, surprisingly, even though it's a memoir, it doesn't feel like it's about you. It feels like it's about all these other people that you come in contact with, most specifically Drew and Juan. And that's what I wanted the book to feel like. I wanted it to feel like I'm a narrator stumbling through the world who then finds the actual protagonists of the story and has the honor of being able to share their legacy, their voices with everyone else. I want people to read the book and, and understand how profoundly they touched people's lives. I want people to understand the power of showing up and, and expressing unconditional love, the sense of safety and belonging that we can offer one another. And the other thing that I've sort of gravitated to over the last seven years is, you know, when you're selling a book to the publisher, they, you get on a, an interview and you basically sell the, the idea or the proposal to them. And this was during COVID. So all of these things are happening on Zoom. It's actually a funny story. I got on my uh, Zoom interview with my publisher, Little A, and my agent's <laughs> microphone wasn't working. So I'm like 30 minutes in the hot seat all by myself with no oh, agent God. to rescue me. <laughs> uh, and, you know, one of, the first, one of the first questions the editor asked me was, is this a book about Pulse? You know, obviously that is something that people are very familiar with in terms of your story. If it's a book about Pulse, why does it need to be a book? Why can't it be an article? Why can't it be an essay? Why do you need 200 pages to tell us this story? And I, I responded and said, it's only kind of a book about Pulse because I don't think you can understand why Pulse the event matters so much if you don't understand why Pulse the space matters to people like me. And so I have to take you back to what it felt like to run away from home. I have to take you back to what it felt like being a stranger around my own dinner table, to what it felt like discovering chosen family for the first time. And so again, circling back to your question, I want people to read the book and understand that while Pulse is the physical embodiment of a place for us in the world, it's really the relationships we build, the chosen families we create, the communities we're a part of that are the real place for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And besides that, that whole context, um, the book is it's, – it's like going to a movie that has a pivotal scene where some characters um, are killed – it's like they make the whole movie. In other words, you know the character. You learn the character. You you live the character. You value who they are. And you give Drew and Juan value to the reader through the book. It's like you, you get, you know, you, at reading this, I'm interested in Drew. I'm loving Drew. I'm loving Juan, you know, and, and loving your friendships together and valuing that. 
And I don't think we get that when we hear these news of these sh- shootings, when we hear about, right. you know, these kids, you know, we imagine a little bit, we imagine what it's like, like I am still to this day devastated by the Sandy Hook killing and even the park, mm-hmm. not even the Parkland killing, but my relationship with both of those were my kids were those ages in each of those instances. They were, they right. were the, the little kids when little kids in Sandy Hook were killed. And the devastation I felt is my own imagination on behalf of those parents. I cannot imagine sending my little boys to their kindergarten class and never having them come home again. It is like it violates everything in my soul. And the same thing with Parkland was, you know, they were then high school when Parkland happened. And it was like the same thing. But what you did in the book was you gave us the real people and the real people who had that that happen. And so it 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 was a deeper sense of intimacy around it than an article might have have given. So yeah, it um, yeah. was super super important. Um, thank you. Well, thank you. I mean, it's like I I and. Also, the thing you were saying, I would, I would, honestly, I would love to hear Drew talk to you about you. <laughs> and, you know, it's like you reminded me of the movie. It would the be Holiday. very sassy, first of all. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because there's a, the, a movie, The Holiday, which is, um, you know, uh, Cameron Diaz and, um, uh, I'm forgetting her name right off the top of my head, but two women, they switch houses. Um, over Christmas, and it's a kind of a rom-com type movie. But, okay. Um, it's like one char- swap, but a long episode. But the one, one character befriends an old Hollywood writer, and she's had this whole for long thing with the, uh, a boyfriend who dumped her and all this, and he goes, you know, Iris, you are a leading lady, but in your movie you think you're the best friend of the leading lady, and you don't realize you're mm-hmm. the leading lady in your own life. And um, mm-hmm. honestly, Brandon, I see you right now as you have you have you have you have spoken for the people who cannot speak up to now, but you, I think you're coming into your lane where you are speaking and you are our hero, one of our heroes, going against oh, the Goliath. Thank you. Yeah, and so thank I you. just I, I just believe in your skills and and what you're doing um, so so much. Um, Thank you. I appreciate that. To that end, I know you you mentioned in there, um, um, you know, Marco Rubio started his campaign, and you threw, you know, threw your support into a political move against him uh, with somebody who obviously did not win, unfortunately. Um, But then also, you rallied for the Parkland kids when they went through what they did. Tell me a little bit about that, of what it was like hugging them and feeling people, young people, um, who also have stepped out and stepped into the lane that you've been in. But um, you were there at the beginning for them. What was that like for you and for them? Yeah, you know, I think some of the challenge of writing this book was figuring out which stories to tell, right? You're, You're... creating a chapter and 
you want to go back and create the best memories and you also don't have, you know, infinite words. And so you got to figure out which stories are the most relevant, which ones are going to help you tell um, the, the right kind of, give the right kind of message for what you're trying to achieve. This was not one of those stories. When I talk about going back and meeting the Parkland students for the first time, it's one of those that even from the proposal phase, when I was just building what I thought the book might look like, I knew that was going to be in there because it was one of those life-altering moments. I've had a few of them. Obviously, meeting Drew is one of them. I talk about losing my mom. Uh, Pulse, of course, is one of those. But the, what, when, it, when the shooting happened at Parkland, it really just rocked me to my core in a way where I was inconsolable for days. And, you know, as a, as a survivor, you never really know how you're going to re- react to things like that. Sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's very challenging. But this one, Parkland, aside from Pulse, is easily the most difficult shooting aftermath that I personally have had to process. And sitting or standing there with those students for the first time, I think confirmed why for me I was holding on to so much pain. Because when I looked in their eyes, I could see myself in there. And, and not just you know, not just seeing myself post-pulse and the trauma and the pain and the grief that comes with that, I could see the eyes of teenage Brandon, but they had had their innocence ripped away. And it just mm-hmm. shattered my heart. And, and so as I sort of detail in the book, this moment where they then turn and console and comfort me, that has stuck with me for the last, you know, five years because there was so much strength and power in their ability to offer love unconditionally to other people, including me, who's a stranger who's now, you know, sobbing uncontrollably in front of them. That could be very awkward as a situation, but their response was to comfort and console and show compassion and unconditional love. Um, And so for me, I learned so many things in that moment, first about myself and, and just what would wreck me moving forward in terms of gun violence. But I also learned a lot about those students. I learned a lot about their strength, about their capacity for love and hope and optimism. And I, am, I feel honored that over the past five years, I've been able to build uh, a beautiful relationship with them. Well, I, I think you, you stepped in kind of as the big brother and, um, you know, it, they, without coincidence, you know, have stepped up to to being vocal in in a very important way, um, as as you do. Um, what what do you think? Um, and you know, I, I know I'm asking a tough question on this, but you know, what is our path forward on this gun violence? It is not getting better. Um, the consciousness of the country as a whole does seem to be raising. Um, around mm-hmm. it, um, because the majority want some controls of some kind. You know, there's obviously a spectrum of what people want to do about it, but people do want something done. Um, but what what do you see the path forward being? Yeah, this. I mean, this might sound a little um, harsh, but we need generational leadership change. I think that at this point, that's the only answer to solving the crisis of gun violence in our country. It's clear that the current crop of leaders, including people like Ron DeSantis, who, you know, are not old, Ron DeSantis is like, I don't know, 41, 42. Um, But 
I think the current crop of people in charge have demonstrated that they're not interested in solving the problem. They don't see uh, a benefit to solving the problem and they don't see any repercussions to doing nothing about it. It's important to remember that by and large, uh, there are obviously good politicians who do good work, but by and large, politicians are motivated by wealth, power, and fame and getting access to those three things, right? They, they do things like DeSantis does outrageous things to generate fundraising content, to climb the ladder to win the next election cycle, and to end up on Fox News so they can be famous and trend. It's the sort of approach that Marjorie Taylor Greene takes to things. Um, and so the result is if, if their actions don't cut them off from one of those things, wealth, power, or fame, then they just keep doing it because that's what they're in it for, right? And by taking no action on gun violence, they have not been made to suffer consequences by way of losing access to donors, by way of losing a next election cycle, or by way of being shut off from seeing their name trend on social media. And so because they've not faced any accountability or consequences for their inaction, they just keep doing nothing. And I think at the end of the day that it's going to take a wholesale change of who's in positions of power. It's going to take the mass shooting generation who knows no different than hiding under their desk once a month to practice mm -hmm. active shooter drills. It's going to take that generation of leaders stepping into positions of power to finally be able to reimagine a country outside the confines of what the gun lobby has foisted on us. Yeah, I, I hear you on that. And this next election, the percentage of the voting block that is Gen Zers will be equal to the voting block that is baby boomers. Um, and so, you know, hopefully we are on the cusp of, of that happening. And I, my prayer is that the Gen Zers don't forget, you know, don't forget who they are yeah. and what's important and, and stay focused on that. Um, you did have an opportunity to confront said politicians when you, you personally have gone in and testified before Congress. Um, I have to say mm -hmm. that is one of, there were several parts in the book where I, I actually had like a gut punch because of reactions you got to things. One was your dad when, um, you know, you were fighting the white supremacists in high school and um, you told them that story about what was going on at dinner table and his response was, um, maybe they have a point. And it was like, I, I literally like dropped the book. It's like, what? I just, as a father, I can't even <laughs> I'm imagine now, his, his head. I'm now face. imagining how my dad responded, by the way. I'm not asking, I'm not asking how he responded to particular parts of the book, but I'm imagining he probably did drop the book. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that I mean, that is a really warm thing in the book, just for people reading it. There is a wonderful arc of the development of your relationship with your dad, and they, they need to read about it. But another one that was a, a book dropper for me was Congressman Kelly's reaction to you when you were testifying about um, why, why wait for others to do something, i.e., he wasn't going to. Um, what was it like testifying in front of Congress, and what was your takeaway from doing that? Oh, I was so nervous the first time. I, I just I thought I was going to lose my breakfast all over the table, I'll be honest. Um, 
And at the same time, that interaction you're talking about with Congressman Kelly was infuriating. I was also stunned that, you know, we're here in this hearing room, we're having a really serious conversation. The hearing was about um, tax policy, which sounds interesting when you're thinking about gun violence, but basically uh, this was an expose on how hate groups in America steal or finagle their way into 501c3 uh, tax exempt status and thus make the rest of us subsidize their hate groups. It was a really fascinating hearing. Uh, I was honored to be involved. The chair of that subcommittee was Congressman John Lewis. So all of it was, you know, an incredible honor, and I was feeling overwhelmed by it. But that moment with Congressman Kelly, for me, sort of brought me back to earth, number one. And number two, illustrated the theater behind politics that I think People assume is there, but when you're in it and you're watching it happen, it becomes so clear to you. People like mm-hmm. Congressman Kelly, people like others in that room, they were not there to have a substantive dialogue about tax policy in America. They were not there to hear about how hate groups are abusing the tax code to force us all to pay their bills. They were there to give their soundbite, get on C-SPAN, use that clip for something later, and leave. They would literally walk in the door at their time for questioning, spend five minutes in the room giving their stump speech, and then walk out. And that was just jarring and eye-opening for me. So once we got to that interaction with Congressman Kelly, I was already worked up about the fact that they didn't seem to care that we were there in the first Mm -hmm. place. And his response was so stunning and so jarring to essentially suggest that survivors of gun violence had better fix the problem themselves, that I couldn't help myself but snap back a little. Uh, yeah, no, I don't blame you at all. And, I mean, you know, just to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, is the thing that is happening that really didn't happen before, especially in terms of the Republican politicians, is where they're just blatantly saying, we're not doing a damn thing. I mean, before they used to at least couch it under something and they mentioned mental health well they cut mental health spending and you know all kind of you know shell games around it now they're they're just blatant and it's just right out mm-hmm. there that they are not doing anything which again is the first thing that i'd want the gen zers to think about as they they uh, move into the the ballot box um brandon you are such a gem and i adore you and send you all kinds of love um, what haven't we talked about that we should have uh, around the book? Well, I just love to tell people, I know we've alluded to it a couple of times, and I promise I won't give it away, my arc with my dad, but uh, I like to tell people that my favorite chapter of the book is chapter eight. It is titled Forgiveness, and it's really broken into two parts. And, and it's, you know, part one, learning to forgive yourself. Um, There's so much about survivor's guilt that I have learned over the last seven years. And there, it, it takes real work to forgive yourself for being on planet Earth when the people you love most aren't anymore, for, you know, finding joy in things and dancing again and singing again, even though you know your best friends will never get the chance to do that. So the first half of the chapter is all about learning to forgive yourself. And then the second half is about learning to forgive people who have hurt you and um, I think one of the, the things that I keep coming back to in the book is this passage about what 
forgiveness really means. And it's not the idea of absolving someone of the harm they've caused you. It's not, you know, a, a, I guess, commitment to suffer from amnesia and forget all the things of the past. It's an, it's an act of unconditional love. It's an olive branch. It's an offer of grace. And in this moment, in our country, on planet Earth, when things are so divided, when things feel so hateful, I think that offer of grace, that moment of forgiveness is going to be a really important lesson for all of us to learn. So I just love to tell people that's my favorite part, my favorite chapter. I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. And, and my only request is if you get a copy, please tell me what you think, because that is the best part is reading what you took away from the book. <laughs> well, I loved it. Absolutely no holds barred. Um, my Thank favorite you. part not to give anything else away, is um, the dream that you had at the end of the book. Oh, um, yeah. And I'll just leave yeah. it at that because um, I, I totally believe in those things. Um, and uh, let's do some housekeeping. Where can people find the book and find out more about it? Yeah, so the book is titled A Place for Us, uh, a memoir. It's by Brandon J. Wolf, and you can find it anywhere you like to buy your books. It's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, uh, you can get it at, if you go to bookshop.org, they'll order it to an independent local bookstore if you like to celebrate small businesses in your community. Um, and you can also go to my website. It's brandonwolf.us, and there are links on there to purchase the book as well as see some of the other interviews and things that we've talked about. Yeah. And just uh, in case I haven't made this very clear, I heartily endorse this book. It is incredibly well-written. The subject is poignant and important, but beyond that, just the writing itself is, is incredibly well done. And so that's, that's my you. feedback as a writer. Um, so there you go. <laughs> so, Brandon, uh, Thank you you know, so much. We're, we're, we're out of time. Um, love you to death. You are welcome back here anytime to talk about anything you want to. You can call up and talk about the weather if you want. Because um, you always have <laughs> well, the weather sucks. Things to say. <laughs> okay, we'll wait till after the summer. It's way too hot to talk about the weather. <laughs> well, out out here it's actually really nice. We're in a nice pocket right now. So, anyway, <laughs> well, for so that's that's for uh, maybe TMI, um, and we get to the weather. Uh, I want to say to our listeners, thank you for listening. Please do subscribe. You can listen to us on any place that podcasts are available. I want to thank Brody Levesque for his work, not only on this show, but for on the Los Angeles Blade. Again, please do read The Blade. You can find it at losangelesblade.com. Also, the sister publication, washingtonblade.com. That one's a good one as well. Uh, for those of us who rated LGBT radio, we'll be back again next week with another fascinating show, I promise. You've been listening to Rated LGBT Radio. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.